0: All right, everybody, I am here with my good friend, Mark Beauchamp, who is the author of Survive and Thrive in the Merchant Services Business. i uh, got a new book coming out, which we'll talk about, and also the CEO of Surf Credit. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Hope you're doing well, too.
0: Doing, doing amazing. So tell us a little bit about, because I know we've already had you on the podcast a while back, so we kind of got your backstory in the industry. So what I really want to know is, you know, how did you decide you're going to come out with another book? Tell us about the book you already have out, and what was this journey that brought you to say, hey, it's time to do a new one?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I wrote the first book, version of the book, in 2003, and mm-hmm. then I did a minor update in '09. But for several years now, I've really been wanting to uh, update many, many of the chapters. I mean, the business has just changed so much. sure it's, has. It's incredible. So... Uh, you know, different products. So back when I wrote that last version, we didn't have EMV. There's a much bigger focus today on point of sale systems, right. cloud payments, payment gateways. PCI has changed, uh, and of course we have uh, our hot products that you talk a lot about, James, cash discounting right. and uh, surcharging out there. So, so that was really the the uh, the concept was to update the book, uh, bring it current. And uh, really, really give the guys that have been buying the book uh, a blueprint to help them be successful in the business.
0: Sure. And, and now the last book, Survive and Thrive, that was really geared at the individual sales representative. Is that, is that right?
1: That's correct. Yep. Cool. And then, Yeah, it was more of a, yeah, basic kind of basic learning the industry right. uh, was really the first version. Yep.
0: That was my that was my take on it. And then is this new one kind of the same? Is it a broader audience of like executives and ISO owners or like what, what are your thoughts on who's gonna get value from reading the new book?
1: I think the same crowd. So I kept a lot of the basics in there, but I've also broadened some of the guest chapters. So I have a lot of guest writers in this version. Right. I've got new chapters a little bit more advanced on point of sale systems, on payment gateways, on monetizing portfolios. Once again, cash discounting, surcharging. And that piece of it will still really be good for, I'd say the new entrant or the guy that's getting in the business, you know, or has been in the business from one to three years. And And then another section I'm really doing an overhaul and we can talk a little bit deeper in a minute, but is the personal development section. and that that part of the book can really apply to, ISOs, agents, really anyone, ISVs, anyone in the industry sure. uh, can apply some of these principles I'm going to share.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that because I always get your email every month and uh, you always do a good job of putting some kind of more general, inspirational, uh, you know, personal development stuff in there. So how did you kind of incorporate your passion for that into the book?
1: Yeah, I really saw an opportunity, uh, you know, this will be my 25th year in the business and I really saw an opportunity to take that experience that I've had, not just in payments but in life in general. And I've sure I've really, you know, started my first business at my kitchen table. I built that up to my own sales force. I've ran a, you know, fifty million dollar ISO. I've done mergers, acquisitions, portfolios. So I really wanted to take all that experience, and and uh, I want to share with your readers that I've made a heck of a lot of mistakes too. So I want to take the learning. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the learning from those mistakes and create a blueprint, uh, if you will, for MLS and ISOs that are in the field to really elevate their life in general. So I've taken a lot of those lessons that I've learned, and I'm going to be talking about ways that they can gain clarity in their life. They can gain uh, or have a, a a better picture of their purpose, identify the gaps in their business. You know, teach them how to set targets, how to gain leverage on themselves to to get them to take the actions that they need to take.
0: Hmm. That's so needed, too. It's interesting, like, as I'm talking to salespeople, especially a lot of them coming through, like, our six-week jumpstart, that kind of thing, I'm always surprised at kind of the lack of, um, you mentioned the word targets, you know, kind of the lack of a plan or a goal. It's kind of a... you know, best case scenario, you find somebody that's just like, "I'm going to go work really hard," which is great. Um, but it, it does seem like in our industry, I think because of the nature of it, like the independent contractor thing, um, there's just not uh-huh. a lot of structure to people's plans. Is that is that kind of what you found in dealing with agents as well?
1: Uh, without a doubt, not not just agents, but you'd be amazed by some of the ISOs yeah. that you would think are <laughs> pretty su- successful that don't have a plan, right? So, right. so what I what I look at you know i think most human beings in general and i think people that even have a little bit of experience in this business i think we we know what we need to do every day to get up and build a big portfolio to build a residual to right. build a successful company but where the disconnect comes is a lot of people can't get themselves to do what they need to do to reach those those goals so i really focus and i'm going to focus a lot of my content that i'm creating is on results, right? So really at the end of the day, as a business owner or a a husband, a wife, a father, uh, whatever your capacity or role that you're playing at that time, what's most important is the result that you're getting. And it's not really Hmm. your intentions. And a a lot of people have a lot of great intentions and they want to do a lot of things, but I think they're missing Missing that commitment level and the ability to gain leverage on themselves to take that action. So I want to share, you know, some of the distinctions. I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm still working on the title of that chapter, but I like the word distinction because I've really seen the differences between the real producers in the business. And I'm not talking just about money. I'm talking about people that have a balance in their life across right. their body, their health, their nutrition, their spiritual being their balance and when you know when your body your being and your balance are all in alignment guess what your business is going to skyrocket so that's what i want to i want to share in that chapter and and i've been doing this stuff for years and i've got some things and routines and you know ways that i look at life and things that i do on a daily basis that i've been you know able to create in my life that have given me the results that i want and i just want to share some of that And, and anybody that wants to Come along with me. I'm going to be doing a lot of a lot of social media uh, stuff, a lot of live uh, stuff, and, and really just sharing my experience and hope for them that they can uh, really uh, translate this into their own lives.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think I, I agree. I think that's going to be so needed. Uh, so I'm excited to, to read a little bit more about that and then talk about some of the other chapters. Maybe some uh, you could highlight. Uh, you know, what are some of the other chapters in there that stand out, or that you know some authors that you have that you want to share with some guest authors so people kind of know what's uh, what's coming.
1: Yeah, I think the big ones, and really the one that you're writing on cash discounting is big. Right. And you know, I'm I'm speaking to agents all the time, and you know, I read your content too, and it's really, really uh, great content for these guys. But I think the hot thing is still surcharging, cash discounting, point of sale technology. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys in the last chapter. Uh, I didn't really address portfolio valuations and how they can modify oh, that sure. So proper, sure yeah I've got John Engle King and super G is going to write great a little bit about that yeah really and then I've, guy. I've got yeah he's a great guy uh, great group over there and I've got uh, I'd like to get a chapter on payfax in there because I'm getting oh, a lot of yeah. inquiries on. Sure. You know, how to put a pay pack together. So, pay pack, high risk processing, and maybe a couple other ones might pop in there. So, talk yeah, about. Uh, good stuff. And then they, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to ask you about that point well, of sale. I, I was hoping you could dive a little bit deeper into that and tell us a little bit more of like what are these challenges that you're seeing that the agents are having with point of sale and and kind of what are some of the topics you're, you're covering in the book with that?
1: Yeah. The, the, the book topic will be a lot of educational, you know, looking at different types of point of sales and just giving them kind of the basic knowledge. So we've got, you know, in the old day, they were all uh, in the restaurant, all the data was sitting there on the hard drive, the old traditional, you know, micro Aloha systems in there. And now we've got all these cloud-based systems. So I think, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to talk a lot about uh, cloud-based POS, the different types of POS, hybrid sure. POS, and, and how those uh, work. And then the, the challenges that I see with point-of-sale, and, and I don't know if it's a generational thing or, you know, you have a group of guys in this business, and probably like me, they're a little older, uh, but some of them haven't really kept up or don't want to keep up with technology, and they're just not – going to change they're still going to go out there and sell and place free terminals and not they don't really want to engage the point of sale right opportunity and and my view is that's a major mistake because everything is going that way right uh it's just a more complex sale it's a more complex animal that you have to deal with and you're you know addressing a lot more issues than you are with just a credit card merchant processing account so i think that's the challenge is some of those guys translating their current knowledge into point of sale. The younger guys get it, you know, we're, we're competing with square out in the marketplace and uh, you know, toast and uh, every, you know, there's a different POS company coming out every week. It seems like, so, you know, you know, they, they just have to do what I'm sure you teach a lot is they've, they've got to add value to their merchant and draw a distinction between themselves and their competition and how do they make their unique their offering unique how do they make themselves unique how do they add value how do i how do they address those pain points that a merchant has and point of sale gives you that opportunity gosh with all the cool systems out there you know i think there's over a million clover installed i think i read the other day so there's just a crazy lot of cool point of sale systems out there that these guys can be offering and working with and and adding a lot of value to the merchants. Mm.
0: You know, one thing I'm just curious about, I know in uh, different careers you've had, you've dealt with a lot of these point-of-sale companies. Um, do you have any opinion about the closed versus open uh, model, meaning you know, obviously we have Clover on the one side and, and obviously many other uh, point of sale systems that have been specifically developed, uh, you know, by a particular processing company or acquiring company, and and it's you know exclusive to them. Versus some companies are purely technology, and they're charging maybe a subscription fee for the software, and then they're saying, hey, any ISO or processor that you know is using a certain gateway, they can all. Sell this. Do you have any opinion about which of those models is doing better than the other and how you see that playing out?
1: Yeah, I think you have to, you know, obviously the ISOs that are private labeling or even developing their own POS software are are tying the merchant processing business to the point of sale. So they're looking to really lock that merchant up and keep them in place and, and don't want them to go anywhere, right? Which from the super ISO or the big ISO perspective, that's probably... Not a bad idea at all. But if you're a merchant level salesperson, uh, if I was out in the field today, I probably would not want to lock myself down with one single system. You know, I'd have to look at the compensation, the residual and everything else. But I like the idea, you know, of having a, a first off and foremost, I think I'd have to look at the feature and benefits for the merchant, what it addresses. And, you know, this, James, I mean, you've got so many different POSs, some are Retail, hospitality—you know, QSR—but right. they don't—they don't meet the mid-market. You got the high-end right. point of sale that can do some things, or don't have online ordering integration, or you know, they're all different. Uh, so uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of guys have three or four different point of sales that they're offering. But uh, but personally, uh, unless I own that ISO myself, I really like the model of. Uh, I would represent two or three different POSs, and as I grew, I might want to try to white-label or brand that point of sale so I can build right. my own brand, and then I'd have a gateway typically that would connect into that POS where I'd have some right. some flexibility and some control over the merchant relationship.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, it's not that the, it's not that the exclusive systems like Clover are necessarily bad, it's just that you want to have multiple options, right, so you can service different merchants uh, and give them what they need. Is that what, kind of what you're saying?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you see Clover's got all – I mean, Clover is a great product, but you've got, I think now, close to 300 apps sitting in the Clover marketplace. So if you're, right. if you're not an agent that can comprehend what all these apps do, now, now we see this in the industry. We see these ISOs now, and it, it's really getting interesting because a lot of the ISOs now are buying point-of-sale companies or creating their right. own POS software. And they're trying to—they're locking up that merchant. But then, uh, you know, you have a lot of the—I mean, it's just going on. What is it? PC America, Dinerware, Micros was bought. I mean, uh, NCR is making major. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just—it's just rampant uh, in the business. So, you know, I just think you need as an agent. I would have multiple systems out there that that you're going to need to have to address those needs of those of those different types of merchants. Now, you know, if you're one vertical, then you can certainly uh, have a POS that really addresses that one vertical. But the other thing I see too is the B2B payment side. And this is an area that really is untapped or not as uh, competitive as something like restaurant and hospitality. I mean, you go into a restaurant and try to, you can reprogram a micros or Aloha in some cases, but the margins on those accounts are just so small Uh, Unless you're going to convert them over to cash discounting, but B2B, I think, or integration into uh, business management systems, practice management systems on the medical side, quoting systems, you know, when you can work with an ISV or you can work directly with the software provider and be the merchant provider, those are sticky and those are very, very lucrative accounts.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, really good point. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. I I think it'll just be so cool to see how everything develops over the next kind of 36 months or so, Uh, you know, because you do have such big players. I mean, even Square now is really getting into it with their app marketplace and their POS uh, or their, their Square register. Uh, and so I think there's some interesting competitors out there, but then, of course, again, you, you do have so many companies now that I, I think a lot of the salespeople in ISOs maybe underestimate their the value of the distribution channel, though. It's like so many of these small uh, ISVs would love to have a team of even five salespeople that was going out there and selling their, their POS system, you know?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there, I mean, there's a ton of value in that, yeah.
0: Well, I'm really excited to get the book. I'm sure a lot of other people are. Give us a little more information on when it's coming out, uh, roughly, and uh, let's also give them that web address they can go to or they can uh, get on the early release uh, you know, uh, forum so they get an email when it comes out.
1: Sure, absolutely. And I wanted to throw in one more thing. I've got a lot of new interviews in the book, so I'll have Oh, great. Uh, Bob Carr. Bob Carr will be uh, updating his interview. I've got Kate Gillespie from the Green Sheet, sure. Mark Dunn from the Midwest Acquirers. I've got the ETA president, Amy Zirkel, Chris Lee, new board member. I've got O.B. Rawls at Paysafe. Sure. Uh, so a lot of uh, – Paysafe's been doing a lot of acquisitions, so I think we'll we'll have a lot of good interviews in there That's as well. Great. Uh, I'm hoping to have it off the presses before the Midwest Acquirer Show, which will be uh, mid-July. But right. they can go to my my website at www.surviveand.com thrive all spelled out dot b-i-z survive and thrive. Biz, and we'll have a form up there where they can get on the wait list and i'll shoot out an email and probably have a a little promotional for the guys that sign up uh before the book's released to give them a little discount uh, sure. on the purchase.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely everybody that's listening, uh, you know, again, our industry, I mean, let's face it, you know, there aren't that many books that come out about <laughs> merchant services, right? So definitely make sure you go over to surviveandthrive.biz and uh, fill that out and make sure you support Mark when the book comes out and buy it. Again, I've got a chapter in there on cash discounting, uh, and I think you're, we have. there's another chapter in there you're going to have uh, specifically on surcharging too, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about both of them. Cool. Yep.
0: So yeah, make sure everybody, make sure you check out the book, uh, go there. So Mark, thank you so much uh, for taking time. I know you're on vacation. So thanks for taking time out of your schedule to, to do the interview. I really appreciate it.
1: No problem. Thank you, James. Have a great day. All right. Thanks,
0: Mark. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by GreenSheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The GreenSheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere.
2: I've always been amazed having research written about the evolution of payment form factors from cash and coin to checks and cards and other electronic methods. The degree to which many people still rely on cash Or as I stated in a recent green sheet column, why cash is cool. Reports on a pair of recent surveys reminded me of this again. First, a report produced by the marketing firm Hill Holiday and released last month revealed that 76% of U.S. adults still carry cash. And more than half of the adults surveyed, 55%, said they can't stand the notion of life without cash. Drilling down, the survey found that 78% of adults use cash at least once a month and half use cash daily. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, by way of comparison, 80% of consumers surveyed by the firm reported using credit or debit cards on a daily basis. So clearly it's not sure. overwhelming, but that, I thought that was significant. Yeah, that and not is. surprisingly, a lot of the cash usage is for small-dollar purchases. Right. Um now, separately, Teesa's recently updated its research on consumer payment preferences, and according to the 2018 TISAS Consumer Payment Study, which was released in April, debit um, overall is the payment method preferred that most people prefer to use. Uh, it was cited sure. by such, as such by 54% of Americans surveyed, up from 44% in 2017, which I thought was a large jump. Yeah. Um, And they said it was the highest favorability rating debit cards have received since they started doing the survey back in 2013. Hmm. The gain in debit card preferences last year came at the expense of credit cards, which were rated as the preferred payment method by just 26%, down from 33% in 2017. Cash also gained, um, went up to 14% from 12% in 2017 and 10% in 2013. Consumers also report using a range of other payment types, Tisa said. About 6 out of 10 ad- adults um, have PayPal accounts, 40% use store credit cards, 11% use prepaid cards, and 4% say they use digital currencies, you know, like Bitcoin right. and the like, which actually surprised me. I thought 4% was yeah. a
0: – Respectable.
2: pretty, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely more than a blip. Now here's some other insights being gleaned from the TISA survey, which I think, you know, if you're if you're out there selling, these are some things you you know, selling merchant accounts, these are some things you should bear in mind. The most popular merchant type for cash is convenience stores and coffee shops. But debit card preferences also prevail at these businesses. Thirty-three percent of consumers report using cash at convenience stores, thirty percent at coffee shops, forty three percent use debit cards at convenience stores. 35% use debit at coffee shops. Uh, debit cards are the most popular way to pay for groceries. Cash and credit cards trail far behind the 62% who said they prefer to use their debit cards. When it comes to eating at fine dining restaurants, consumers prefer to use debit cards, but credit cards are forced a close second. Pay at the pump gas stations. And this surprised me. Nearly half of the consumers surveyed said they prefer to pay with debit cards, while 30% say credit cards. And this surprised me because of the protections that come with most credit cards and the fact that gas stations don't yet have to be EMV compliant. And, mm. um, you know, you, you, you compare that to the fact that consumers say they are deeply concerned about security. Right. You know, among those surveyed by TESIS, 88% said they were extremely concerned or somewhat concerned that their account of personal information could be stolen. Hmm. So this brings me back to the Hill Holiday Survey and another finding from that consumer study. Over, just over 45% of adults surveyed said they see no reason to use mobile payments. In fact, only 20% reported that they had made mobile payments, and nearly 6 out of 10 of those only began using payment, mobile payments in the last year. Not surprisingly, uh, mobile payment adoption skews towards younger consumers. 88% of those under the age of 40 have tried mobile payments compared to 55% of their elders. But even among younger consumers, just 22% reported using mobile payments at least once a day. Hmm. Now, Hill Holiday's study suggested consumer awareness and familiarity around mobile payments could be lacking, which may have something to do with those numbers. Right. But it also pointed to a willingness to learn on the you know by consumers. Twenty-three uh, percent of those surveyed said they do didn't know how to use mobile payments, and an equal share didn't know where they could use mobile payments.
0: Hmm. That's a big um, issue.
2: That's a big issue. You know, twenty-nine percent said POS cues describing how payment mobile payments work would increase their u- willingness to try. Thirty-five hmm. percent said cues letting them know that a store accepts mobile payments would prompt them, sure. which I think is a pretty good idea. So, really, I think the awareness. I think the security issue is, you know, a lot of people talk about security, but sometimes convenience trumps those fears. Right. Particularly if they haven't been stung. Right, sure. Um, And I think that, you know, the lacking in in mobile use probably is tied directly to mobile awareness. I mean, I, I don't see that many stores that I walk into that have signage on the door saying we take Apple Pay or we take mobile payments. Right. Uh, sometimes I see him at the cash register. Yeah. But I think, you know, people need to know when they're walking into a store, hey, I can do this.
0: Yeah, and I think the I think the core issue with that is the merchant needs to have a reason why it's in their interest to promote it. <laughs> right. Right? I mean, I right? feel like mo- I think if you if you asked most merchants, do they see a significant advantage for their business in in accepting Apple Pay and in promoting it, they would probably 90% of them would probably say no. No, which is the reason and why they don't promote it.
2: <laughs> which is <laughs> you know? why they're not. I mean, maybe if they're, you know, maybe if they got a bunch of customers that came in and said, "Hey, can I use this?"
0: Right. It reminds it's... me of a
2: of a of a hint of a tip you gave a few months ago in one of these podcasts. Where a great way to sell um, mobile payments is walk into a merchant, try to buy a candy bar, and ask if you can pay with your phone.
0: Right. Exactly. You can't,
2: you can't say, "Hey, I can sell that to
0: you." Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And I think I think, too, that it's kind of the classic chicken and uh, chicken or egg problem, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, consumers, consumers would probably use mobile payments if all the merchants that they went to, if more of the merchants they went to accepted it and more merchants would probably accept it if more consumers wanted to use it. But right now, you don't have either side of the equation. And so you got to do something to incentivize one side or the other. And right now, You know they just really have not done a great uh, a great job with that. And again, I think the end game is going to still be with, um, you know, like uh, we talked about, Apple coming out with their financial management stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the end game is, you know, data. Once the consumer is getting good data from using their mobile payments device. And or right. once the the merchant is able to integrate their loyalty and rewards program with their mobile mm-hmm. payments or whatever. So one side or the other has to get a benefit for doing it and without that I don't think they're gonna see a lot of progress.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I you know, I um was just talking with a friend about this the other day and he, he was, you know he was pondering the idea of uh, you know, mobile mobile um loyalty apps with a payment right attached to it. Sure. Right? Yeah. That, you know, um, why doesn't everybody do that? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and he's like, you know, I have, like, he lives in Atlanta. He's like, you know, I have two of my local merchants where I use that. And I, and I use my mobile app all the time because I'm getting double rewards every time I do it.
0: You know, and I think, the, I think the issue there, honestly, one of the big issues is that that makes a lot of sense for a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks mm-hmm. or somewhere where people are going either daily or multiple times a week. Um,
2: Right, like a convenience store, right? Right, but
0: but I think the issue is that um, you know, and again, it's so funny because we just talked in the last insiders report about you know where does the individual agent and small ISO fit into the picture and. I right. really think it's it's ironic and interesting that right now the answer is that they just don't, and I think that's one of the main reasons why it doesn't work. I, I think that I think that mm-hmm. a lot of the mobile payments companies have failed to recognize the success of the model of having direct salespeople talking to merchants. You know, if some of these companies that you know, if there was a company that had a processor agnostic loyalty rewards mobile app. And they were white labeling that to all of the ISOs and getting them to just include it with the merchant services as the loyalty rewards program. And we've interviewed some people on this podcast that have something along those lines. But nobody is really interested. And I had like a really good conversation actually with somebody uh, that fits this description a few weeks ago. And I said, you know. How much are you willing to pay for these accounts? You know, like if you're willing to right. pay an individual rep $100, $200 to add this loyalty rewards app onto what they're selling you probably get some business, you know. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think there's going to be companies that will come along that will tap into that network. And, and I think, you know, some of the stuff just has to be sold. I think business owners, you know, that's a great point. I think business owners and consumers alike would enjoy a one app that they could use in their local market at multiple merchant locations. Right, You know right. But it just hasn't been sold yet very well, very effectively.
2: Yeah, you know, and I remember back many moons ago, like in the 90s, there, it's, they tried doing this, especially in college towns, Right. Um, and they would, you know, get a – like, I, I went to the University of Maryland. College Park is a fairly large mm-hmm. city. Sure. And um, and so they got all of the local merchants in College Park to accept this loyalty-slash-prepaid card. Right. Um, and I believe like, – I could be mistaken, but I believe it was um, marketed by one of the local EFT – you know, ATM networks. Sure. I think it was the most network, which is now something else, but um, – and i was really surprised they they did it for you know 6 months to a year and then it silently you know silently was put to sleep yeah and, and, but, you know, it shows that people were thinking about that 20 years ago and it right. still, they still haven't. Well, really and, and I think play. the big
0: difference, of course, now is the mobile phone, right? So it's like, right. you know, a program right. like that ostensibly might not die because people didn't lose the card. You know, they have an app right. on their phone and they still have that app. So, right. yeah, and definitely a big potential. Like
2: in closed environments like that. I mean, I could right. see, I mean, University of yeah. Maryland itself is like a little city. They have sure. so many stores on campus, right? Right start out there and grow it out I think in a sure you can you can you know that's a to me those are great um, test beds college towns are
0: sure well look at Facebook that's Facebook was exclusively for college students at Harvard and yep. then it was for college students and then it was for everybody so yeah, good yeah. example so, of it yeah so good stuff awesome thanks Patty appreciate it sure thank you This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. Is statement analysis something that really frustrates you? Whether you are an individual agent or you have a team of agents, we have the right solution for you. We take you all the way through the sales process with a mobile friendly tool. Whether you are looking to provide that instant quote to the merchant directly on the spot or you are looking to complete a complete and accurate side by side comparison. We handle the entire process in one smooth flow and we even allow you to make marketing campaigns where you can send links directly to a merchant and allow them to get their own quote using our algorithm that predicts interchange costs and using the pricing templates that we've loaded into the system for you. If you want to learn more about our system, visit instantquotetool.com or shoot us an email support at ccsalespro.com, support at ccsalespro.com. So, I was trying to figure out should I talk about cash discounting or surcharging first? Because we're in this mini series about pricing structures and we've talked about interchange plus, tier pricing, flat rate, subscription rate. And so I'm like, okay, which do I want to talk about first cash discounting or surcharging? And I really decided neither because there is a fundamental concept to both cash discounting and surcharging that we really need to talk about. First, then we can dive into the specifics of these different pricing structures because there are some variations, uh, even with just cash discounting. There's variations of that program. So, what I want to talk to you about today is the concept of passing the cost of processing onto the consumer. What is the current state of that? Uh, is it working? Is it profitable? You know, what are the what's the deal with this? So. You know, the first thing I can tell you is that just because I was kind of in the right place at the right time, and I was talking about this a long time ago, with my consulting practice, I've really had the opportunity to work with a lot of different companies, uh, software companies, ISOs, agents, you name it. You know, that are dealing with these these programs of cash discounting and surcharging. We've had the opportunity to interview many experts with differing opinions on the podcast, and so. What about this concept of passing the cost of processing onto the consumer? Well, a couple things I want to talk about here. Number one, you need to understand if you haven't done so already, you need to understand that this is a major trend that is taking hold in the U.S. market. Now, if you say, well James, I don't think it's going to play out in the US market. Well, you could be right and I could be wrong, but what I would do is I would encourage you to look at the evidence. Okay, You look at Australia. I think Australia is such a great example because Australia right now, 62% of transactions in Australia are surcharged. Okay. That is an enormous number. That's a huge number. Um, And so, what we see in Australia is another developed country, um, a country that is very similar to ours in terms of the payment space, um, that has moved towards surcharging. Now, when we look at Australia, we see a couple of interesting trends there because what number one again we see that this this concept of passing the cost of processing onto the consumer has taken hold. Now, a couple of things I will mention in in uh, you know what, how it's working in Australia. So first of all. I don't know if it's directly as a result of the surcharging and, and, and that, but you have seen a huge drop in interchange. So the interchange fees have been regulated down um, and they're a lot lower. And so if you wonder why is it that there seems to be such a fuss with Visa and MasterCard about surcharging or cash discounting? Why do they care? Why do they fight surcharging? You know, why do they have bans on surcharging? Why are they fighting cash discounting? Well, the reason is very simple. Once the consumer becomes aware of how much they're paying for payment processing. Well, that's going to put market pressure on Visa and MasterCard and the banks to lower the interchange cost you know um, and right now in the US market you know the interchange rates are significantly higher double and in some cases triple what they are in other developed countries um, and that's a lot of money that's a lot of profit that the big banks are making and they don't want to give up that money and so there's definitely this idea of you know we don't want to see lower interchange rates um, and so that's kind of a big reason why the the fight is there because the idea right now is a lot of these companies they, they again they just don't want consumers aware consumers just generally now kind of realize that it does cost a little bit extra to the business owner uh, when they you know use their card but they don't fully grasp how big of a deal it is okay now that's the first thing I want to talk about now the other thing that I want to mention is that in Australia to my knowledge and I've done a little bit of research and I believe I'm correct in saying this that in Australia I do not know of any A surcharge regulation by Visa and MasterCard or rule of any kind that says you can't add a surcharge to a debit card. Okay. So in the US market right now, we have this big debate in our industry of like, well, cash discounting or surcharging. Well, you know, the core concept is we want to pass the cost of processing on to the consumer. Now, the question is, do we pass the cost of processing for credit cards and not debit, or do we pass the cost for everything on? Well, You know, the interesting thing is, you know, in in Australia, which is more of a developed market in this area, they just have surcharging. I don't know if cash discounting over there is being a big thing because surcharging over there, you can surcharge debit. So, you know, I see the US market going in the same direction because, you know, these surcharge bans, the surcharge bans that have been struck down in Florida and Texas, you know, These laws that have been struck down, nowhere in any of the court opinion does it mention anything about debit cards being different than credit cards. The only reason we can't surcharge debit cards in the US right now is because Visa and MasterCard have a ban on doing so. But I think if you look at court precedent and things that have already happened, I would imagine at some point some of the powers that be may uh, challenge that ban on surcharging debit. And most likely, I would think, based on what's happened so far, probably. They would win that argument in court that hey you know Visa's ban on surcharging you know was was unconstitutional in my opinion originally because of free speech um, and that's what the courts you know voted that when they struck down New York's law um, on surcharge ban and I think they would say the same thing for debit cards I don't see why it's any different yes it's a little cheaper to process a debit card in some cases not for small ticket but in some cases cheaper to process debit than credit but that doesn't really matter I mean at the at the end of the day does the merchant have the right to pass on the cost of processing to the consumer or not. If they do, then they should be able to do that for all the different car types. Okay. So right now in the U.S., we do have these two programs though and there is a lot of confusion. We are going to clear that up in the next couple of episodes, but just to give you the high level view of it. On one side, we have surcharging. So surcharging is something that is compliant, it's allowed by Visa. There are still some states that have a ban on surcharging, four or five, depending on how you want to classify some of the states. (laughs) Um, But there are still a few that have surcharge bans that have not been um, eliminated. New York still has a very stringent law on the way that you surcharge that makes it difficult for a retail or restaurant establishment to use a surcharge, so there are still some state laws. Banning it, but the direction that we're moving right now in the U.S. is that surcharging is going to be allowed in all 50 states. I believe that will come very soon. Um, hopefully within the year, I would hope uh, that would be the the idea there. Um, and so surcharging is allowed, and again, it's compliant with Visa rules. Now it's important to understand. That's not because Visa loves surcharging, okay? Visa and Mastercard fought surcharging tooth and nail <laughs> for a long time and now they finally, you know, saw the writing on the wall that it was going to be their surcharge ban was going to get struck down in court. And oh, what do you know? Now you can surcharge. It was part of a settlement with merchants a while back. So, you can surcharge. That's that's compliant with Visa rules. Again, as long as you're in a state where there's not a surcharge ban that hasn't been struck down. Um, so you have surcharging. Now the issue with surcharging, the primary downside to it is, or you know, upside depending on your opinion, is that you can't surcharge debit. Now, some merchants actually like that better. They like the idea of, okay, we are going to add the service fee onto all of these uh, credit card transactions, but if somebody uses their bank card, well, we are not going to add that service fee. And so That gives the consumer a more convenient alternative if they want to avoid the service fee. So Some merchants like that. Um, some agents enjoy selling it that way. On the other side, you have cash discounting. Cash discounting is where you are giving a discount when they pay with cash. Anything that is not cash, they are paying more for that than they would if they paid cash. So that would mean generally speaking that debit cards, signature debit and PIN debit usually are going to still have that service fee. Now, we'll talk about that. There are actually some variations. There are some companies doing uh, cash discounting where they're not doing pin debit uh, service fees. So there's a lot of variations, and we're gonna dig into how to price these programs and how the profitability works. But the first thing I just wanted to talk about in this introduction was the idea of passing the cost on to consumer. Number one, it's a very legitimate concept, and it's one that's taken hold in several other countries. The largest of which that's really taken hold of it is Australia. So we have an example of a market that has taken it large. Merchants over there, like the big box retailers, are all doing it, um, and so that's a, a market where it's you know taking hold. In the U.S. market, there is a little bit of confusion still because of debit cards and because of Visa rules and regulations on not surcharging debit, signature debit or pin debit and prepaid cards as well. You can't surcharge those. So that's created a bit of confusion in the market and a little bit of a fragmentation that in my opinion is really unnecessary. When people say, well are you for cash discounting or for surcharging? Well, you know, really I'm fine with both of those options because I believe that over the next five years, they're going to merge into one. I think it will all be become surcharging, but I think surcharging will allow us to surcharge debit at some point in the near future. So the idea is the, the concept of passing the cost onto the consumer, the only real question is what cost are we passing on? Passing on all the cost, or just the cost for credit, which would be a compliant surcharge program in 2019. What is that going to look like in 2024? Well my guess would be you could pass the cost on everything. So we'll see how that all plays out. but. Next week, make sure you tune into this segment. We're going to talk about surcharging, go through some of the rules and the compliance and everything like that, and also talk about pricing and profitability, which can be really confusing with surcharging if you don't know what you're doing. So, My name is James Shepherd. Make sure you tune in next week to learn more about surcharging and how it really works. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.